Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Then 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. This is God's word. I want to start by getting you to think about this idea, this, this cultural phenomenon. Do you know what it means to be consumer-driven? It's a phenomenon that drives marketing and retail. It's where customers' needs and wants, our needs or perceived needs and wants, drives what products, what services, um, what shopping experiences are offered by businesses. And basically, uh, consumer-driven experience means that if we, the customer, wants pink the businesses will give us pink. If we want to be served by men in black suits with an English accent, well, sure enough, greeting us in the front door of the stores will be men in black suits with English accents. If cranking the music, the rock music, and spraying men's cologne in the store will help us buy more products, then stores like Abercrombie & Fitch will do that. It, it creates this dynamic of service that, that turns us into highly sensitive consumers. We are really afflicted with consumerism in our culture. If it's not our way right away, then something is wrong and it'll be adjusted. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to shut consumerism off when we walk through church doors. And unfortunately, it, 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 it accompanies us to church and has a silent but serious influence on our faith life. Basically, consumerism, my way right away, make me happy, puts our faith on autopilot. Consumerism, consumeristic faith causes the Christian to come to church or religious programming and say, feed me, fill me up, tickle my intellect, warm my heart, and give me enough inspiration to last me through the week until I can come back again. That's what I mean by autopilot. Some of you might be saying, what's wrong with that? That sounds good. Feed me, fill me up, tickle my intellect, warm my heart, tide me over. But if you think about that, that, that that's a lot like what we do with babies. We feed them, we fill them up, we tickle them, rock them to sleep, because they can't do it on their own. Consumerism is putting our faith on autopilot, and on autopilot, 
you think you're flying just fine. Your Bible gets highlighted. The sermon notes section in the bulletin gets filled out. You pray for yourself and others. You think you're on the right track towards spiritual maturity. But when you're on autopilot, the reality is it's like you're driving your car in first gear. Have you ever driven your car, like, you know, made the shifter and you shifted too far down and you're in second or first? And the engine's revving, but you're not really going anywhere. And then you look down and you say, oh, and you put it back in the drive. When our faith is on autopilot, when our spiritual life is on autopilot, it's like we're stuck in first gear and the engine's revving, but we're going nowhere. The Bible's crystal clear that spiritual maturity is measured not in information. Spiritual maturity is not measured in theological savvy. It's not measured in how popular you are in church. The biblical standard for spiritual maturity is character transformation. How much you are becoming like Christ. In the Bible, to be mature, and, they, and, and Jesus often phrases it, to bear, to bear fruit, to be mature or to bear fruit always means to be growing in character. It means you're becoming more compassionate, more content despite your circumstances, more joyful, more kind, more self-controlled, less swayed by what others think, less anxious, less stressed out by big or little things. And so when our faith is switched on autopilot, we may have all the external indicators of Christian maturity, but inwardly, we're spinning our wheels, unable to gain any traction. We're just as unloving, just as Selfish, just as short-tempered, just as materialistic, just as impure as we were last year or the year after that. Autopilot is not what Jesus had in mind for Christians. So what I want to do this morning is look to see what goes into a vibrant, growing faith What does it look like to live out our faith not on island autopilot, with the autopilot function disabled? We are a week from Easter, and I want us to all walk out of here knowing that uh, the difference that Easter makes for us going forward. What does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it really mean to be a follower of the risen Lord? So let's start with our first short passage from Matthew. Let's... uh, if we could read it again, Matthew 24, uh, 16, 24 says, Then Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, okay, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever, wants, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. It sounds a bit confusing, but if you separate it out, it, it soon, it soon you'll find it to be uh, quite simple. The passage gives us the spiritual principle that if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for Jesus, then you'll find it. Go looking for your life. Try to save your life like everyone else in society through money or marriage or materialism or or whatever, and you'll lose it. You'll never find your true self. But if instead you lose your life for Jesus, 
You come to find your life. The life that you're yearning for. Real life. Unshakable, rock-solid life. But how do we lose our life for Jesus? Well, verse 24 helps us out. It makes it clear. Jesus says to his disciples, his followers, if anyone would come after me, if you want to walk this road of faith, if you want to grow in your faith, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Again, it sounds a bit mysterious. And what does that mean? But once you break it down, it's really quite simple. We find life in Jesus by denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus. We're to deny ourselves. We're not... Not to live our lives as a a reaction to our impulses, as a reaction to our urges, our desires. We're to deny ourselves, instead take up our cross. And the cross is a symbol of death to the flesh, death to our sinful nature, our our, our human nature. We're to deny ourselves, take up our cross. And in other words, put to death our human nature and instead... Follow Jesus. Does this make sense? We give our natural tendencies... um, I have a friend who who visually put it this way. We we give our our, our natural tendencies the Heisman, you know? And we go around it, and we follow Jesus. The illustration that first pops into my mind when thinking about... This passage is the children's game, Follow the Leader. I think we're all familiar with Follow the Leader, right? There's a leader, and he does whatever, or she does whatever they want, and all the people in line behind the leader follows exactly what the leader is doing. So if the leader's skipping, everyone else is skipping. If the leader is whistling and walking backwards, everybody turns around and whistles and walks backwards. You're familiar with it, right? Jesus is essentially saying, get into the game. Follow the leader. Now, what if I was playing follow the leader in my backyard? And the leader decides to, sit, to uh, take his, his next move and say, okay, we're going to flap our arms like we're flying and hop on one leg, okay? <clears throat> and I decide to sit down in a, in a lounge chair. Okay, imagine this is a lounge here. And uh, pull up my iced tea. And, and I decide to flap with one hand while I'm holding my iced tea and kick like I'm hopping on one leg. But I'm sitting on the lounge chair the whole time, sipping the tea. And I say, okay, I'm doing it. I'm following you. Is that really playing the game? Is that following the leader? No. But honestly, isn't that what we do most of the time? When it comes to following Jesus, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we're like sitting on the lounge chair. Okay, I'm loving my enemies. I'm following you. Are we? Jesus says, don't hate. Don't judge. Don't be anxious. Pray in private, fast, without drawing attention to yourself. We say, I'm doing it. I'm following the leader all while sipping our iced tea or lemonade. It's crazy if you think about it. Here's another way to think about it. Let's say I ask my son Sam to come come to me. I have an instruction for you. And I say, Sam, 
I want you to take out the trash. And Sam scampers off. And about a half hour later, he comes back to me and says, Dad, I've memorized what you told me. Take out the trash. And then I look, and the trash is still there. And he scampers off. And about an hour later, he comes back and says, Dad, I looked it up in the Greek. The word take out the trash comes from trash oh my. And I look, and the trash still isn't taken out. And he scampers off, and about an hour later, he says, Dad, I got six or seven of my closest friends together, and we all decided to talk about what it means to take out the trash in our lives. And I look, and the trash is still there. You're laughing because this is what we do, isn't it? How much... Does this scenario describe your faith life? If, I think, if you think that this, this isn't describing me, I dare you to take out the Sermon on the Mount and read chapters 5 and 6 of Matthew and see how well you're following Jesus. I mean, just looking at the titles in, in, in the NIV here, it says, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't hate. Don't call, uh, don't call anyone a fool. You heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't lust. Keep your oaths. Love your enemies. Give to the needy. Pray. Fast. Don't store up things in your house. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't judge others. Golly, the bar is high. And the Sermon on the Mount all deals with internal character transformation. And internal character transformation won't come about if our faith is on autopilot. We have to take personal responsibility. The bottom line is this. Last Sunday, we all stood and sang and praised God together, saying, Jesus has risen. He's alive. And because he's alive, it means he is true. He is what he says he is. He is Lord. He is God in the flesh. So if Jesus is Lord, and he's beckoning us, to sideline our natural desires, our human nature, and follow him on a new path to a new way of life, shouldn't we do this? This puts us face-to-face with the question, how? That's why I have 1 Corinthians 9 for us. The Apostle Paul is making an impassioned explanation in chapter 9 of what it means to live out the gospel to him. And he ends by giving us this strategy Do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. Although when I run, it looks like I run running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He's given us an awesome word picture here, a visualization on what it means to grow in faith, what it means to become more like Christ, or or how, a strategy. He compares growing in your faith to professional athletes in training for a race or competing in another... In another of the events at the, uh, the, the uh, 
the Corinthians held a version of the Olympic Games. So it would be an image they're all familiar with. Don't you know that these guys go into strict training, Paul says. They have daily routines that they stick to. In fact, they stick to it so much that if they skip their routines, they feel all out of whack. To compete well means to train well. Paul is saying this is his strategy. In verse 27, he says, I beat my body, I make it my slave. He denies himself, he takes up his cross, so that after he preached to others, he won't be disqualified himself. Train in faith, Paul is telling us. Train like an athlete trains in sports to win. He's calling us to a methodical, habitual routine that helps us to grow in Christ, to exceed in following Jesus. This is where faith becomes active. Salvation is all Jesus is doing. We have faith because of God's love and Christ's atoning sacrifice for us. But we grow in faith. Let me put it this way. Growing in faith gives us a more active role, a very active role, where we partner with God, the Holy Spirit, in our, in our growth, in our maturity. And I want to conclude our time here talking about five ways to enhance your faith training. Exercises, practices that will bring about Holy Spirit-driven character transformation. Now, when you hear these, I don't want you to just turn them off and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know this one. But listen to them. Think about them. Think about how you can apply it into your daily routine. And really, there are all kinds of spiritual exercises, spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines. And I'm only going to give you five. In fact, I've been thinking of a while, maybe we should, we should do an adult Sunday school class in the summer where for five weeks we look at spiritual disciplines. Keep your eyes open. Maybe we'll, maybe, maybe we'll get that um, on a sign-up list and, and get that going. But the first one I want to talk about is silence and solitude. I found this great quote, but I forgot where I found it. So I don't know who wrote this quote. Just think it was someone really awesome whom you really respect, okay? The quote is this. This generation has been stimulated more than any generation in history. All day and all night we can be listening or watching, exposing ourselves to the bombardment of words, music, and images through all the electronic media. So we don't pray in a vacuum. Our head is full of pictures, tunes, and stories. We suffer from what has been called monkey thoughts, clamoring all over the place, chattering and distracting us. Silence and solitude is really mandatory. It's mandatory for Christian growth. John 5:15 says, "But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed." Even when the folks were so excited about him. They were surrounding him with uh, people to heal and all that stuff. Jesus, it's a, it, if you read through the Gospels, at very appropriate and inappropriate times even, Jesus says, oh, I'm out of here. And he goes and withdraws to the mountain or to a lonely place or somewhere else. Silence and solitude is freeing yourself from the ad- addiction and distraction of the noise of everyday life so that you can be totally present to God. It's the foundational piece to healthy spiritual training. 
John 6, 14 and 15 <clears throat> tell this cool story. It says that after the people saw the miraculous signs that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make, make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now this is like totally good for Jesus. The people are getting it. He's the prophet, the one to come. Yet he slips away and goes, spends time with the Father. Silence and solitude. We need to make time for it, even if it's just a half hour in the morning or at a lunchtime. Get away from silence, the, the, the cell phone. Get away from the iPad and the computer and make yourself available to God. My first... Uh, Internship, I had a pastor that modeled for me incredible silence and solitude. He said, Mike, I do an hour a day, a half a day a week, a day a month, and a week a year. And it showed. He, he wasn't often furled by anything. The church could be on fire. And <laughs> he'd be like, oh, let's call the fire department. Silence and solitude, number one. Number two is devotional reading. Now, devotional reading is not reading through a book. It's not trying to cover a certain amount of verses in a sitting. It's not trying to read the Bible through. Devotional reading is reading for life change. The purpose is to prayerfully encounter and surrender to Jesus' work in you through Scripture. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Don't think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to do away with the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Scripture. And so when we devotionally meditate and dwell on the Scripture, we should be seeing how Jesus intersects with the Scripture and how Jesus intersects with our lives. It requires an open, reflective, listening attitude, inviting God to work in you. Hebrew 4, 12 and 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. The word of God can get in there and show us our ugliness. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says, Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Silence and solitude, devotional reading. Three is three and four look alike, but they're really different. Prayerful meditation. This is kind of like private worship. Prayerful meditation is to deeply consider, analyze, ponder God through the world around you, his creation, and through his word. So this is talked about all over Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Psalm 37, 7. Be still before the Lord. Be still and know that I am God. Oh God, we meditate on your unfailing love. I meditate on your promises, the psalmist says. Meditating on God is... Uh, through prayerful meditation, we, we think about God, His world, uh, uh, as we observe it in nature as we chew on a piece of God's word, as we 
meditate on Jesus as an example or some of Jesus' teachings. Meditation can even look at, think of people in your life who, who, who really bug you and, and then picturing how God sees them and asking God to, to work in you so you see them like God sees them. Meditation is considering, analyzing, pondering God through his creation and through his word. Number four, contemplative prayer. This is not prayer for requests. It's not prayer for an SOS emergency help. It's not just thinking out loud to God while we work or drive. It's a kind of prayer for the sake of hearing from God to grow more like the person God has created us to be. To recognize Christ in us and be alert and aware of the Holy Spirit's work in us. Contemplative prayer practices the presence of God. We chew on a small bit of scripture, letting it sink deep within us prayerfully. Allowing the Spirit to nudge us or fill us or speak to us. I heard of contemplative prayer like this. It's wasting time with God. We'll waste time on sports, video games, sitting on the couch. Contemplative prayer is wasting God, time with God, inviting God deep within to hang out and seeing what happens, listening for his voice. Contemplative prayer develops a trust in God, an awareness of God around you, allows you to feel God's love more, and experiences healing words and promises. The last one, number five, is fasting. Fasting is letting go of an appetite in order to seek God for something important. You got something heavy on your mind. A relative in trouble, a decision you have to make, some ambiguity, some unknownness. Fasting is self-denial of normal, normal necessities, food, whatever, drink, whatever you want to fast, or a self-denial of desires. But the purpose is to intentionally seek God through prayer. And what fasting does is it just makes you realize how strong your flesh is, how strong your attachments, your cravings, your urges are. So you could fast from media. You could fast from food. You could fast breakfast and lunch or a whole day or multiple days. Fasting builds inner fortitude. It makes resisting temptation a little bit easier because you're strengthening your ability to deny yourself and take up your cross. It helps us to trust and rely on God. Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, when you fast, don't draw attention to yourself. But the idea is like, hey, if you're following me, of course you're fasting. Of course you're fasting. But if you were to poll the average Christian, when's the last time you fasted? They would say, well, when I had to go for that screening. <laughs> not spiritual means. Fasting is a way to make yourself aware of how strong your fleshly desires are 
and to silence them and avail yourself towards God. These things are all some of many ways to train, to help us exercise our muscles so that we can deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow closely after Jesus. And the result, the result is given in Psalm 1. It says, we'll be like a, a tree firmly rooted by a stream, by a river. And when the drought hits, our leaves will still be green. When the heat scorches, our fruit will not shrivel up because we're rooted in Christ. We have allowed God plenty of room in our lives to dwell, to transform. When we do these things, silence, solitude, devotional reading, prayerful meditation, contemplative prayer, fasting, it's like putting fertilizer in our soul. And you'll see things pop up like love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. See, being saved doesn't mean being saved for later. It means being saved from our sins. It means cutting us loose to live victorious lives as we follow Jesus. Full of love, full of peace, contentment, and passionately pursuing Christ and how he is guiding us daily. Easter means we have the power of the Holy Spirit at our access, and we have Christ in us. Let's go forward following him, availing ourselves to him.